Welcome to another episode of Overcome Out Loud with Charlie Smith. Uh, the podcast Overcome Out Loud has been created with the sole purpose of sharing the s- courageous stories of, of amazing men and women who have overcome adversity in their lives to give other people hope. So many people suffer in silence. I did for so long with a violent upbringing uh, in my childhood, addiction, alcoholism, and I stuffed all that stuff down and suffered in silence until I reached out and asked for help and found that by overcoming out loud, we can give other people hope. And, you know, I am, I think when I came up with the concept for this podcast, I had uh, my next guest uh, in mind. You know, I've, I've just been waiting to meet him. He's a remarkable two time world champion. Uh, he's a London gold medalist uh, two times over. Uh, he's a remarkable Nike athlete. He's a speaker um, and, and an amazing inspiration to so many. He's joining us today from Jamaica. David Smith, welcome to Overcome Out Loud. Charlie, it's it's great to meet you guys, and uh, you know, thank you for the invite. I've, like when we first connected, I've been looking forward to this conversation for for some time now. So um, it's it's great to be with you. And in full transparency, you know, we don't know for sure, but we we don't think we're related. But you know, I think when the world was created, they said everybody's last name was Smith, and if you fucked up, they changed your last name. So really, there's not that many of us perfect Smiths left, except David and I, I, I and a few others. I know, <laughs> I know. And it actually, it reminds me of when I was I was skiing in America years and years ago, and and somebody asked me my name, and you know, they're like, oh, you know. What's your second name? And I think they were genuinely excited that I was going to say I'm a McDonald, I'm a Wallace, or something real Scottish. And I came up with Smith, and they were like sorely disappointed. <laughs> so I, I figured when I was traveling in America that I would just put Mac in front of the Smith, so it sounded a bit more Scottish. So I went as, as Mac Smith. I love it, dude. That's awesome. And and David and I, you know, as the world is for all of you that are are, are out there putting good energy into the world, we're we're surrounded by amazing people. We're influenced by amazing people. We came together through a collective influence of my good friend George Mumford uh, and by the influence in, in, in David's life by Brian Kane, who's one of my mentors and mental performance coaches and has kind of launched me on my path. And, and so the two of us have, have met. But really the story is about David, who today, just, just so we know, uh, and we're going to get into what it was like and what happened, but today, six years ago, uh, as we sit here on this, on this podcast episode, was a, a, a real turning point in your athletic and personal career, personal life, huh, David? Yeah, it's funny. Today's a, it's a pretty big day, actually. And in some ways, I refer it to as my awakening, uh, you know, coming conscious. Today was maybe the day six years ago that I consciously became aware that, A, I was alive, and B, that, that I could die. And I think I, I remember reading The Alchemist, actually, during this journey and, and in part of that book. And, Paul Girl speaks about, you know, when did you know you were alive? And I think for sure, six years ago today, I woke up from a 10 hour surgery and was paralyzed from the neck down on one side of my body. And at that point, I probably realized I was alive. I was very thankful, first of all, to wake up um, as today it could have read in my tombstone 1978 to, to this day in uh, 2016 in March the 2nd. And I was very lucky that that doesn't read, uh, but it was also, I guess, in many ways, the first time that, that I really became aware of my own mortality. And I, and I think that that was a pretty powerful lesson because it ultimately the paradox of waking up in such a traumatic state uh, was also the best lesson almost to learn how to live. Uh, it was a pretty powerful lesson to actually go through that, to actually really appreciate life. Um, but ultimately, yeah, today I woke up, I, I put both of my feet on the floor, the left one, albeit it is, is, needs a little bit of help, 
but I was very grateful for the ability to to breathe and, and put my foot in the floor and, and and be mindful of of every breath I take. And and up until that point, I don't know if I truly was mindful of every breath I'd taken on on my journey through life. Uh, it took it took an extreme thing to to awaken me. Yeah, let's let's put that in context for the people that are listening because this is this isn't like this is, this wasn't some minor incident this is you know we're talking about a world-class athlete you know and, and maybe you can share a little bit about your journey up to that point because you know you've you've reached elite status at, a, at, a, at an athlete in many sports you know be it cycling being rowing being you know the things that you've pursued did did that interest you know start at a very young age where did where did that kind of spark for for uh, elite performance and, and high performance athletics kind of enter your life yeah, for, for me, it was actually never about high performance in regards to the world, about trying to be a world champion or trying to be an Olympic champion. It was actually just trying to be my best. That was what my philosophy always was. How can I be my best? I, I grew up in a, a tiny little village in the north of Scotland. I would say I, I definitely wasn't academic. I was surrounded by incredible mountains. And I, I was really fortunate, I guess, I found out what a flow state was at the age of five-year-old. Because my parents would take me skiing in, in the winter, I would water ski and windsurf in the summer, and I was doing karate uh, all, all year round. So from a very, very young age, I started to learn about the power of emotional regulation, about breathing, but also about flow states. I had no idea what these were, but I was exposed to them at a very young age. And I just fell in love with moving the body. I, always, I have a great philosophy that our bodies are meant to move and I just loved all what I guess what sport was that the, the values it taught me from persistence resilience respect karate was very much about respect it was about emotional regulation self-awareness so these values were all very present at a young age and I, and I just fell in love with that I fell in love with the discipline and, and the focus of sport and always pushing my body and pushing my mind to see how far I could take them if I, if I was going out running I'd be like well, how far can I go tonight how fast can I go and I guess that all led to a life in sport. I didn't really focus initially and specialize in one area. The village I grew up in was a big ski village, but we didn't have programs to get people to the Olympics. And I was pretty fortunate. I'm quite glad I didn't do that. I'm quite glad I experienced all these different sports. And ultimately my, my love was to go to the Air Force. I, I didn't want to be an Olympic athlete. I wanted to go and work as a physical training instructor in the Air Force and sort of have a life of sport that that side and it wasn't until later on in my life I started to I discovered track and field and uh, I was working on a building site at the time and I'd already competed in karate for Great Britain for 10 years and, and gone to multiple world championships and karate wasn't an Olympic sport and I was working on a building site at the time and the guy said you know you look like you could be a decent 400 meter runner why don't you go and join the athletics club which was just across the road from the building site and, and I wandered over one day in December and just said you know I'd be really keen to, to see if I could run a 400 meters and it was in December in Scotland so they had a, a couple of lanes cleared uh, of snow to run and the athletics coach was like sure let's get you some spikes and, and I ran and, and I ran at 50 seconds it was the first time I'd ever been on a running track and he was like wow okay you, you've got potential that you could be a decent 400 meter runner I'm, I'm six foot four a nice big long stride and I'd never trained in athletics but I had the mindset of an athlete from years of karate skiing all these different sports I'd competed in a Scottish sport called Shinty so I'd, I'd always been competitive in sport and he was like, this is, you have the, the perfect makeup for an athlete. But unfortunately, when I was born, I was, there's a high chance I was born with a very rare sarcoma tumor 
very deep inside the spinal cord in my neck, but I was also born with club feet and my both of my feet were fused facing backwards and they had to be repeatedly rebroken and set in special plaster casts and that left my uh, right foot deformed. So I guess in many ways, uh, trying to be a phonometer runner, I, I had the I had it stacked against me. You know, one of one of the hardest physiological events in the world, but also I had a had a tumor in my spinal cord at my neck and I had a, a deformed foot, which neither of I was actually aware of at the time when I went into athletics. I, I, I wasn't aware of the, the tumor or or the, the problems with my feet. When you talk about the I'm I'm struck by by your uh, description of the, the mindset of an athlete because I think most people associate the mindset of an athlete with wanting to achieve this high level goal. I want to be, you know, on the cover of this magazine, on the cover of the Wheaties box. And what I heard you say was just so powerful, which was I was committed to just improving myself. The joy, it wasn't about an outcome for you, although you, 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 you knew that there was something you could do with it. You didn't know what it was. But when you get in that growth mindset of, and, and so many elite performers or, or high-level CEOs, you know, you read about, they really didn't set out to do that. They just set out to become the best version of themselves, and they became committed to this process of seeing what they could do with themselves. It wasn't like they could, they didn't think they could be anything they wanted to be, but they knew that there was something potentially they could be that was more than what they were, and you strive to be that. And I don't think people equate that to the real mindset of an athlete, but it is the, mind, the mindset of most elite athletes. I've always had a philosophy that you develop the human first, then you develop the athlete. And, and, and you know, the sad state of it is sometimes when you specialize so early, that you get so obsessed with developing the athlete, you forget to develop the human. And, and I, I see that in some in sports, you know, when athletes who, I guess we only ever sometimes hear from athletes who make it, but the, you know, the thousands of athletes that don't make it and then struggle with the athlete transitions for whether it be injury or just deselection, if you've purely focused on developing the athlete and never invested in the human, then they kind of, you know, it, it can be a really tough time for them. So for me, I always thought, well, if I develop who I am, sport is just something I do. I never really wanted to truly identify with sport. And I think that was key for when I was paralyzed, because if I purely identified with being an athlete, when I was paralyzed, I would have, I think, you know, in the first year of spinal cord injury, it's a high suicide rate in that first year. And I think for me, the first year in that window, I was, I did struggle. I did think sometimes is, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Why is it worth living? But ultimately the goals, the process goals, the performance goals, outcome goals, they were always the driving factor. And I think for me that sport gave me that mindset, but I also knew that I wasn't the sport I did. I was much more than that. And who was I as a human? What were my character strengths? What were my values? And this was always something that was underlying. And I think that that's been the key through all the different sports I've done, but it's also been the key to deal with cancer and to deal with the spinal cord injury that I guess that gave me that sort of anti-fragility, resilience that, that I could manage. I've always had the philosophy that sport gave me the mindset to deal with cancer and a spinal injury, and cancer and a spinal injury taught me how to live. Wow. I mean, that's that's remarkable. And yeah, when we attach our worth to outcomes, you know, and, and we think we're going to live and die by our performance, we don't look at the whole person. That's why... You know, I think for anybody who's trying to achieve anything in their life, the, f the first module of any kind of really personal development should be self-awareness. Just actually, you know, and, and, and to, to, our, to our, our kind friend George Mumford, he, he once said to me, and he looked me squarely in the eye, and he said, Charlie, I just need you to be you. And it's the hardest job that you'll ever find there is 
because mm -hmm. most of us take, don't take time to find that divine spark that lives inside of all of us to kind of chip away the narrative of my dad, to chip away the narrative of what the world thinks of me and figure out who I really am at my core so I can be myself and, and for you to have that ability at, at, at such a young age and see how it transformed you is, I mean, it's nothing short of remarkable, man. It took me, it took me, it took me six surgeries. So I've, I've now been diagnosed four times with, with a life threatening uh, condition. I've gone through six spinal surgeries. So I've had the front of my neck cut open three times and I've had the back cut open three, uh, once and then through the side twice. And I've gone through seven weeks of, of radiotherapy. So along that journey, I've spent 11 years in and out of ICU. And sometimes people often ask me, you know, what, what did you learn from sport? And I said, you know, I've actually learned probably more from spending 11 years in ICU units, in neurological wards, in spinal hospitals and radiotherapy, and also sitting opposite somebody when they tell you, okay, you have a 50-50 day chance of, of potentially dying. And if you don't have the surgery, then you, you will die. And through all of those processes, there was something, there was a, a key defining moment in all of them. And again, another friend of yours, Brian Kane, I, I was listening to something online during this whole journey. And I heard this voice saying, be where your feet are. And up until that point, I think I'd spent way too much in my head. I was living in the future, building all these what if bridges or trying to chase meadows. And, or I was living in the past of all the things that happened in my life. And I hadn't really delved into the self-awareness of peeling back the onion to see, well, who, who is David Smith? And when people ask me that question up into Paris, I always said, I'm an athlete. David Smith, I'm an athlete. And then I realized that actually I'm not an athlete. That's just what I happen to do. And it was those words, be where your feet are. And I remember that point just stopping dead in my house and then bringing my full attention to this guy. I had no idea who he was. And I listened to him and his energy and everything about him. I was like, wow, this guy's onto something. So I sat back, rewinded it, listened to it again. And then from there, I kind of stole his little quote. And I always move forward saying, David, be where your feet are. David, be where your feet are. And I truly realized that we don't, we have nothing else by the second that we're in right now. And I realized when you're living with a tumor that, that ultimately could take your life at any point, I started to think, right, the magic happens in the moment. I, I need to be fully present, be where my feet are, no matter what I'm doing. And it's funny because a lot of people, I don't know if you've experienced this, child, but a lot of people then would say to me, but do you, not, do you not have goals? Surely, surely you can't just live like that and not have goals. And I think that they're, they're missing the beauty of what really that statement of be where your feet is, it really means. Yeah, it, they do. And I'll bring some context to it because, you know, obviously when, when people go about the idea of achieving something in life, um, and I think in the Mindful Athlete, which you read as part of your as part of your schooling and, and a book that we, we both share, George talks about outcome expectations. And it's not about not having goals and dreams. It, of course, we want to have goals and dreams. We want to know where we're going. It's an important part of our of our compass is having an idea and, and being purpose driven about where we're going. But it's about where our focus goes. So, yes, that's an important mark on the on the map. But it's not where our, I mean, it's like that's not where our focus needs to go because the way to get to the destination, it's like if you were to pull your phone up, I think, and, and put in a destination, if I were to put Jamaica in my phone, you know, I would hit enter and it would be this big long map from California to Jamaica. And then when I hit go, it would say, drive out of your fucking parking lot, make a left. You know, it's the, that next 200 feet that we really can control that is where our, focus, our present minded focus needs to be. 
And if we do that in the right way, and you talked about it, you know, so perfectly because it's, it's about where you're going, you know, it's about how you go there. But I think what you've described is, is one of the elements that I'm really focused on, which is who am I going to become on my way there? You know, yeah. how am I going to, am I going to drive in traffic? How am I going to deal with the fact that there might be an accident? How am I going to deal with the fact that something may happen to me? Because who I become on the way there is the most important thing. And that's what present moment focus is because we really don't have this, you know, assume control over our destiny. So yes, set the compass, put the, put the coordinates in your map, hit go, and then drive the next 200 feet. I think that's the way I view the, the context around what you were just describing in terms of being where our feet are. Does that, does that resonate with yeah, you Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And it's super interesting for me to, to hear it that way as well, because I think my whole sport in life, there was always this outcome goal. So you're always attached to this, this greater thing. So you always pursued it. So every time I went on, on the bike or in a rolling boat, it was always about getting to the world championships, getting to the next selection race. And it was so hard to keep that mind in the moment because there was all these pressures about hitting certain scores, hitting certain targets. So you were constantly getting pulled out of the moment. And it wasn't until I woke up in 2016 paralyzed and couldn't move. And I was like, right, the first thing that usually you do when you have a spinal cord injury is you want to get back to the person you were pre-injury. And it's like this, this journey you're about to go on. And I had no idea I was about to go on this journey. And at this point, I woke up and I was like, okay, I, I can get back to the athlete I was in 2015 or even in early 2016 before I walked into the surgery. I walked into the surgery on the 1st of March and I was um, I was the fittest I'd ever been. I just spent a few months in Spain on the bike, cycling. I was, I was in great shape preparing for World Championships. And my only objective was to get back to this person. And then that caused this huge emotional roller coaster one day I was on a super high, and then the next day I was on super low. I had no real self-awareness of what was going on. And it wasn't until, I guess, after eight weeks I'd spent on the neurological ward. And a neurological ward is a tough place to be because the only thing that's separating you and the life next to you is a, is a curtain. So the curtain would get pulled closed. You'd hear somebody say, look, I'm sorry, you have a brain tumor. You're probably only gonna live for six months. Or oh, I'm sorry, you have MND. You're not going to live any longer than a year they'd pull the curtain back and you'd be sitting with this person. So right away, I was like, wow, one of the key things in here is, is emotional intelligence, but also I need to be really aware of what that's, how that's affecting my emotions, but also how am I affecting everyone in the ward? And, and it was really interesting because the first step in that for me was I needed to accept my situation and, and not, I guess, live in denial. I had to be fully present in the moment. And every day was just like, okay, today, what am I going to achieve? And I, and I came up with this little philosophy in my head. I was like, David, you can either turn up every day or you can show up. And I said, everyone in the hospital is turning up to the rehabilitation gym. They all want to walk again, but they're only turning up. Those who are showing up, then that, then that was different. And I've tried to use that philosophy the rest of my life, but it was, the, okay, what's the first goal? The first goal is just to try and sit up the highlight of my day at that point was having a bed bath or somebody just coming and taking my my urine pots. I even had to do the bathroom in the bed. And you know, it was it was a pretty horrendous place to be. So I did use a lot of visualization, going taking myself to a future place, to, you know, to visualize the body moving. All of these things were, were super, super important. But I think that the real important thing was was being fully present every day and starting to understand how the environment was affecting my emotions, but having that pause between the stimulus and the response 
was 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 super key because I was holding on to this person I used to be going through this transition of now that I'm going to be this disabled person paralyzed in the neck down life is going to look a lot different for me so I needed to really work on the the emotional regulation that things didn't trigger all of this wanting to be who I used to be person and I had to accept that okay for the rest of my life I am going to be paralyzed and that is really hard to manage not driving you into a negative state and also not living in this super optimistic sort of Stockdale paradox uh, mindset that they're going to find a cure someday. I hope they find a cure, but I can't live every day thinking about are they going to find a cure? Are they going to find a cure? I need to be very much mindful of getting into the moment. And that's, yeah, like George's book really was a, was a game changer for me in that respect as well, that you know, the magic happens in, in the moment we're in. Yeah, can can you? I mean, I think it's it's important to to draw contrast between the who you were in 2015. I think I, I really want people to understand what you had achieved in your you know athletic career going into this life changing moment. It, it was not insignificant. This was not somebody who'd been you know kind of striving to become great and was was on his way to be. I mean, you had achieved when, in 2015. Can you give us a little context of when you talk about the man that you were? Can you talk about yeah. a little bit about that 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 person? Yeah, sure. So I I had um, I'd, I was a black belt in karate. I'd, I'd spent my life doing martial arts. Uh, I fought in Japan. I'd fought in South Africa. I'd, you know. I'd, I'd competed all over the world. I had run track and field at, you know, at a decent level. Uh, I was a 49 second, 40 meter runner. I pushed on the British bobsleigh team on the, you know, just not, not, slow, not making an Olympic team, but I wasn't far off an Olympic team as a brakeman. So I was 17 stone. I could squat 200 kilograms. Uh, I was running sort of 370 for the 30 meters, uh, it, you know, at 17 stone. Um, I coached on the Olympic ski team, so I'd spent a year coaching on, on the Olympic ski team, traveling the world with the World Cup guys. I'd spent uh, four years in the British rowing team. I was a double world champion and won a gold medal in London. And then I just transferred over to British cycling. And at that point, I was cycling around about 400 kilometers a week uh, and, and racing as a, as a Paralympian, but, but meddling in able-bodied time trials in the UK. Jesus. Uh, so I was in... And this, this was with the foot deformity. And at that point, I'd already been diagnosed and had the surgery in 2010. I'd had a spinal stroke in 2010. And I'd also had major surgery in 2014. Uh, so I was balancing these two races of racing the, the tumor, but then also trying to live this two lives. One is pursuing these sporting dreams. And then the other one, having to deal with the reality of life at the same time. And for me, I guess sport was my coping mechanism. I always went to sport. Every time I got diagnosed, the first thing I went, right, what's my goal post-surgery? When I got diagnosed in 2010, the first goal after that was, right, I need to make the world championships in 2011 and then the games in London in 2012. I had two years from waking up with this sort of temporary paralysis to get to the games. Then after that, it was like, right, transfer to British cycling. In 20, I'd spent a year in the team in 2013, got into the 2014 season, everything was going great, was diagnosed again. And then they told me they were going to cut me down through the back of, of the neck in 2014. So before going into that surgery, I was like, right, what's the goals coming out of this surgery? Because in 2010, when I was operated on, 
to go through the rehabilitation was horrendous. To, you know, to be cut through the front of your neck twice, the, the, the whole process was, a, was an horrendous trauma to the body. And I remember saying to myself, I could never go through this again. There's no way I could go from that bed to being at a world championship level. Like I knew the work I put into it. I was rehabbing five, six hours a day physically and then doing all the mindful work, the visualization work. It was, it was in a, an horrendous toll on the body. But it's amazing that almost our minds are programmed to forget the pain. And then when we're presented with it again, we, we go again. And that's what happened in 2014. So I went through the surgery in 2014 and I set myself a target six months from the surgery. I would cycle up one of the most hardest climbs in Europe called Mont Ventoux. And I would do it three times in one day. It's called the Crazy Man Club. So I, I and I did it you know, six months after surgery. I was stood at the top of one, two after nine hours in on the bike that day. And then seven months after that, I was back racing for the national team in, in Italy at a World Cup. And unfortunately, then I was diagnosed again in 2015 and then faced this, this really life changing surgery in, in 2016. But I went into that surgery, you know, an, an an, a, a machine. I was, I was, I was generally a, a machine. I could just churn out session after session. And that's having been through a number of surgeries. So what, you know, for you, it wasn't, you know, we talk about resilience. I think, you know, I, I, I talk about this concept of conscious competency where, you know, we've got this competency of getting through things. Sometimes we don't pay privilege to it. And we think we just kind of got by either by luck or we got through on, on, on sheer will. But there were a bunch of behaviors that got us through all of these adversities. And you'd been, you'd been, although you, you, your mind would say, I can't go through this again. Your heart knew I can't, I, I have everything inside of me because I've been through it before. I know how to get through this again. Will it be hard? Yes. Will it take hours? Yes. But do I know I can get through it? Yes. And so you'd built this kind of conscious competency around those events. But 2016 was very different because when you woke up from that surgery, you had a whole new reality, man. Yeah. I, I remember waking up in ICU and I was like, holy shit, something's not right. Yeah. And well, everyone was around me, don't worry, don't worry, you'll be okay. And I was like, no, I can't feel anything from the neck down. Like I, I literally cannot move. And I walked into that surgery. So it wasn't like an accident. So I, this right. happened like under anesthetic. So I had no idea what was going on. And I was like, I can't move. But I believed I would move because in the past, I had all the evidence to show I could. So the first thing I did was set a goal line in ICU. I was hooked up to pipes and everything. I was like, I'm going to ride for Great Britain again. And I'm going to cycle the Grand des Alpes, which is a 740 kilometer cycle across the Alps from Geneva to Monaco. And I said, like, I'm going to do that. And I see your nurse just looked at me and he was like, nobody wanted to tell me. Nobody wanted to say, I'm sorry, but you ain't recovering. All the doctors, everyone was like, yeah, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. And as the weeks went on, the weeks went on, I was eight weeks. I hadn't breathed fresh air. I hadn't seen outside. And at eight weeks, they said, right, we're transferring you off the neurological ward to a spinal cord hospital. So they stuck me into a wheelchair, pushed me out of the hospital. It was the first time I breathed fresh air in eight weeks. And I remember just taking this inhale and the tears rolling down my eyes, they plunked me into an ambulance, drove me to the spinal cord hospital, wheeled me in and put me into a ward. And that's when it really hit me. I was like, wow, I'm no longer just a cancer patient. I'm now a spinal cord injury patient. So I'm now dealing with these two things. And I was like, how did I get out of this? And the first thing the doctors came around and said, you know, what's your goals? And I was like, well, I want to cycle for Great Britain again. And I want to cycle across the Alps. And they were like, I think you should just brush your teeth. Let's aim for brushing your teeth. Let's aim for you getting dressed and potentially being able to do the bathroom on your own. So that's the picture of where I was. 
And I just had the mindset, the stubbornness of this athlete mindset, very much like when Michael Johnson spoke about his recovery from his stroke, he spoke about, I approached my stroke like I approached Atlanta Olympics. And I was the same, I was like, right, I'm approaching this like I would a race and leave no stone uncovered. Every single thing I've learned in sport, I'm going to use. And I just became this single-mindedness driven. I was the first at the gym every day. After the gym sessions left, I went and did extra work. And I walked out of that spinal hospital four months later. Okay, I, I had to drag my leg, but I, but I left the wheelchair at the door and walked out. Then it was like, I need to get back on a bike. And that, that's where I struggled because integrating back into society was the first time that I realized, well, I'm disabled. Life is hugely challenging. And, and I fell over and I, and I hit rock bottom. And I think I needed to hit rock bottom to, to then build again. And, I, and I, again, I just built again with the same mindset. And I found myself back on a bike racing in 2017 in the pursuit. And everything was great. I went to the world championships in 2018. I was a minute off the podium. I thought, this is awesome. As a, at that point, I thought, you know what? I can accept the paralysis because I'm cancer free. I can just get on with my life. Little did I know, because the hospital didn't tell me, the tumor was growing back. So I did the world championships, flew home to the UK for a scan, had the scan, and the radiographer just looked at me and he went, go and enjoy the next few weeks of your life. And I thought, that's really odd. So I jumped on a plane to Canada, raced the last World Cup race. Whilst there, I thought, this is not good. This is definitely not good. I got a call from the hospital saying, look, unfortunately, the, the tumor's growing back. And it's, it's, it's really big. And if, if we leave it, you're, you're not going to live. And, but they didn't have a surgeon to operate on me because the surgeon who paralyzed me had retired. So all of a sudden I found myself in this no man's land with no team behind me on my own. And I thought there's one last thing I had to do the cycle across the Alps. And I'd worked so hard to go from that hospital bed to get back on a bike. So I flew to Switzerland rode across the Alps in seven days doing 100 kilometers a day with this huge tumor in my spinal cord with one leg. And I remember there was a there was a defining point I was riding along this cliff edge and I just thought to myself, I could just cycle off that cliff right now and it would just be over. No more fighting, no more anything. And at that point, it was like Brian's words were back in my head, be in the moment, be where your feet are. And it pulled me back into the moment and I was like, wow, this is, this is beautiful. Look at the mountains, the Alps, everything. I was like, I can, I can fight this. I've been through this before. And then in 2018, I walked back into surgery and the nurse said, I said, I'm here to check in for surgery. And she's like, you don't look like any of our patients. And I looked around and I seen the ward and I was like, oh man, in, in two days, I'm going to look just like that. And it was heartbreaking because I'd worked so hard from 2016 to know that in only two, three days time, I was going to wake up in ICU at complete rock bottom again. And, and that was tough. So, I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, it's talk about, I mean, you're a resilience expert. You are, you are an adversity expert and, and talk about holding the hope and the hurt at the same time. It's like the, you have to, right? I mean, you have to believe that I've been through this and I, and I got back on a bike. And so, yes, this is going to be hard and you draw on all those things, but your mind's still got to be telling you i mean david this is this is too much it, you know i don't know if i fully maybe accepted what's happening and i yeah. may be living in this bliss that i'm just like in fight mode and i'm in fight mode and i'm constantly just go 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 and when they they did this surgery i remember walking down 
that morning to the anesthetic room. You go into the doors, I jump onto the anesthetic bed. And I'm just talking about sport to the anesthetic people. They're like, oh, you just cycled across the Alps. I was like, yeah, I just cycled 740 kilometers and now I'm about to be cut open. And they're just looking at me going, you're mad. How, how is that even possible with the tumor you have in your neck? You know, most people with this tumor are, are in a wheelchair or lying in a bed. And I'm like, I just, I love life. And I, and I want, I know it's very short and we're only here for a short period of time. And I want to make the most of that. And for me, that is, that is doing sports where I feel my happiest. And what I realized is that I couldn't really walk, but I could cycle. So the bike for me became this point where I got on my bike, I left my disability behind. I'm in a flow state. So I'm not thinking that nonstop radio in my head of, the critic of telling me tumors, paralysis, this, but that just goes quiet and I'm just loving my writing. So for me, that's always the, the, the coping mechanism, the driving factor. This surgery was different though, because again, they're going in for the fifth time. And after that, I woke up, there was a fiber surgery. I woke up, they did a scan and they said, look, we didn't get enough, as much of the tumor as we hoped we got, we have to go in again. So within two days, they were back in there again. So they pulled the staples out, go back in and I came around from that. And I remember spending, 10, 12 days at ICU and the most excruciating pain I'd ever been in. And there was moments there where I was like, I can't go on. I couldn't open my eyes for, for two days, Charlie. And, and I remember thinking, you know what, if, if I die now, I, I'm, I'm happy to die now. I'm, I'm content. Uh, and maybe in much of a, of a stoic way, I'd meditated my death. And I thought if it, if it was to happen now, the last memories I have are right in the Alps and I'm, I'm happy to go now. But now here, you know, I think a lot of people think that we can avoid negative thoughts. You know, even even in the, even in in just bad when we're having terrible days, it's like I, I just want to avoid the automatic negative thoughts. And I think your point is so well taken, which is you can't. I mean, as human beings, we're wired a certain way, and these these emotions, these feelings, these little kind of voices, they're going to pop into our head. It's just how we're built, and we but we have this choice, right, about how much power we give them, and we have this choice about letting them go and drift into the distance or attaching to them and somehow defining ourselves by them. And what I've what I've heard from you is this kind of. I guess what I'll call it is just mental this mental toughness, this this mental conditioning, which is yes, I have these thoughts, yes, it seems dire, but what I'm going to do with this is apply this kind of solution focus to it, which is I'm going to achieve something as a result of this. And when we when we focus on solutions, you know, and as I heard you say, here I am, big tumor, no surgeon, no team around me, but I also just heard you say after bicycling the Alps, you were in surgery with a surgeon and they were going in and taking your tumor out. So you stay focused on solutions. We find solutions. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of, of Trevor Moad's work, you know, that neutral thinking, find that neutral state. And one thing I went through the whole time I'm cancer, every time I meet people go, oh, just be positive, just be positive. And I'm like, you know, this is a really shit situation. I don't want to be positive. It's a, it's a, I'm going to right. die. There's nothing positive about dying, but I realized that, okay, being positive in that effect just didn't work. I was lying to myself and I knew I was lying to myself. So I was like, well, okay, that's not really serving me, but I don't want to be negative either. So I, I was a big believer in trying to find this neutral place of accepting where I am at the moment, right? Okay, what can I do? What's the solution? Okay, what can I do in the moment that's going to make tomorrow a better day? And that's, okay, find a new surgeon, find a good medical team, find doctors that are willing to, to, to treat me and look after me and set the goals to get back on the bike. And I went through that surgery. I was two weeks in hospital. I was back on the turbo trainer at the bottom of my bed three weeks after surgery. I built myself up knowing that I was going into radiotherapy in 2019, knowing that I was going to be rock bottom again. So I got myself to a level 
where I was like, right, I'm ready to go for radiotherapy. I went seven weeks of, of radiotherapy every single day uh, and met an incredible amount of people who were who were super resilient. And you know, some of them are no longer with us. You know, but the the way they approached and faced cancer was 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 incredible. And for me, in that point, I just thought, you know what? Okay, I can't be positive, but I don't want to be negative either. If I'm going to die, I don't want to spend my last month or two months of my life or a year of my life in a real negative, bitter, horrible place saying, why me? Okay, let's let's find this sort of, I guess, alert, calm state, manage these emotions, reframe everything, and, and do what I can in the moment. Because what is, is, is I can't change it. And being angry and furious is not is not going to help. So I started to realize, okay, what emotions are going to serve me the best and, and that emotional regulation. And I guess, you know, one of the greatest lessons for that was, was martial arts. I'd never seen martial arts about, it's not teaching people how to fight, it's teaching people to manage their emotions. And, you know, and, and I went all the way back to when I was seven, seven year old in a dojo and having to manage that emotions. And I thought, wow, I've almost been preparing my whole life just to deal with this thing. And it's not to say that I don't wake up some days and I'm terrified and I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't want, the voice starts to hell. And when I, when it goes and they start talking about death and all these things, and I'm like, well, okay, let's just sit with that for a minute. It's not making me feel good. I'm just gonna direct my attention and go and either get on my bike or get in the swimming pool or go down the gym and do something that can actually take action that's gonna serve me well. And, and that's something that I flung myself into this world of, you know, of mentors, you know, like I, I listened to, I've read all of Trevor's books, George's books, Brian's stuff, I, you know, Michael Gervais, Rich Roll, Andrew Huberman, yourself. I, I tune into that world because I don't want to expose myself to too much negativity. I, I want to enrich myself with knowledge that I feel serves me well and, and I can learn from it and I can grow as a person. Well, yeah, you, you, you epitomize. And I think, you know, in, in it takes what it takes Trevor's first book. Um, you know, mm -hmm. he talks about how we think the people that achieve things like you've achieved in your life have this superhuman DNA or they're, you know, they're go bots and they're somehow you, and it's like, we're, we, you know, we all have the power within and, and the ability to just eliminate negativity and get to that neutral spot and focus on the next right behavior. You know, I mean, I have friends who, you know, uh, their 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 wife of 50 years passed away during COVID, you know, and he gets up and he goes and he plays four holes of golf and he goes for a walk with his headphones on the beach and he thinks about the time that they were in Paris together. And is, you know, does he miss her? Yes. Is he sad that she's gone? Yes. Would his life be better with her? Yes. He doesn't deny those feelings, but what he does with those feelings is focused on his next right behavior, which is I know I'm better when I walk. I know I'm better when I'm exercising. I know I'm better with friends. And so, you know, I think Trevor you know, gave all of us an incredible gift, which is the elimination of that. I describe it as that toxic positivity. It's like I talked to a lacrosse kid, you know, he was, he called me up and he's like, I broke a team rule. I got suspended. I lost my starting position and four of the seniors on the team uh, got let go because they also broke the team rule or they weren't happy with the discipline. And I'm just trying to be positive. I said, how's that fucking working? You know? And he's like, it's hard. And I was like, that's because there's nothing to be positive about, but can you go do your homework? You know, can you show yeah. up for practice on time? You know, can you be a good teammate tomorrow and, and, yeah. and just focus on the next right action? But I think most most of us want to get out of the state fast, and so we don't accept reality, and we want to try to kid ourselves into that kind of rainbows and unicorns, and it and it causes more pressure. It causes way more fucking pressure, man. 
Yeah, and I think that's what you know Trevor alluded to. That's the, the almost the, the the crux of the self help world. It's all about this positivity, positivity, positivity all the time. Everyone's got to be positive. And I, I know I've, I meet people and they're all like positive, positive, positive. And I'm like, oh, that's not that's not reality. You know, there's there's bad shit going on in the world right now. There's bad shit going on in the world. It's you can't turn a blind eye to that. You're like, and and even with paralysis, I'm like, you know, this is. There's not a day where I wake up and I have a mind, a voice comes into my head going, you know, this is really shit, David. Being paralyzed from the neck down is not great. And then I'm like, the other voice is like, right, but we can't change that. But what can we do to be a better person? What behaviors can we do? Okay, I know if I go to the gym or I go surfing or I go and do something that challenges me, I'm generally going to be a happier person. I'm going to enjoy life more. So I choose to, to do that. And, and I know that, I think Andrew Huberman spoke a lot about how in the past, maybe people tried to influence thoughts, feelings, emotions, and then a behavior. But I think there's a, there's a lot of good research out there saying, as a Nike says, if you just do it. And Trevor spoke with that as well, just do it. If you go and do the action, it's more powerful than sitting, maybe sometimes trying to do all of the cognitive reframing. Just go and do it. Move the body. There's a huge rush, rush of endorphins. And, and then you're just going to feel better about yourself. Yeah, he. Uh, it's so. It's amazing you brought that up. I literally just read on the elliptical this morning that page in "It Takes What It Takes" because I read it a lot. And he talked about just do it being the ultimate neutral. It doesn't promise anything. It doesn't no. promise it'll be great. And it doesn't promise that you'll fail. It just says just go do it. Whatever it is, you know. And yeah. and it's that act of. And I, I like to to kind of add my own narrative to that. With it, it it's always the next right indicated action. You talked about values you talked about kind of what defines us and i think that speaks to who we become on the way there because you know if we cut corners if we treat people unfairly if we're not living by a set of values and principles you know i achieved a lot of material success when i was in active addiction and i don't like who i became on the way there this transformation mm -hmm. period for me this new chapter has all been about me owning the pen to the story of my life um and and deciding who i'm going to become on the way there and the first thing i had to do was really get principle driven not preference driven because i'm yeah. sure there's days for you and maybe you can talk a little bit to our audience about the difference between living a principled life versus a life of preference because i'm sure your preference some days is it's just i just don't want i just don't want to and it's the it's the doing when i don't want to that that kind of starts to shift our needle does that resonate with you at all yeah, I have a lot of, I, I, I was listening to a, something Andrew Huber said the other day about, again, limbic resistance. And I do have a lot of limbic resistance. You know, I wake up and I'm thinking, you know what, man, I don't want to go out today. Like, I don't want people looking at me and staring at me and saying, hey, dude, what's happened to you? You know, every single day I'm having to relive it because people are looking at me, staring at me, judging me. And it's just hard work. It's hard work when you're paralyzed from the neck down to leave the house. And it's like this this voice starts discussing, you know, let's just lie in bed, you know, let's let's be more introverted, let's let's change the way you lived your life. And then I'm like, well, actually, you know, what what are my principles? What are my guiding principles in life to get out and smash it, to show up to every day and live it like it's my last. I always say to people, if you look in the mirror at the end of the day, are you happy with the way you live today if it was your last every day alive? If not, you've got to take action the next day. There's no point repeating it again the next day and repeating it because you prefer to eat the pizza or you prefer to eat the soda or you, you know, like I, like we all know this stuff we put in our body is not good for us, but we still, you know, it's easier just to do that rather than getting out and actually smashing it. And that's where I started to surround myself with all of you sort of, you guys. And I started listening to all this stuff because in the UK we have a little bit, it's maybe I think preference sometimes rules a little bit. There's not that energy sometimes, you know, when people are speaking to you, there's kind of like, 
like monotone voice. But if I plug into yourself or Brian or Michael Gervais or any of these people, there's like this uplifting voice, you know, like Brian is like, smash it. <laughs> and so I started listening to these people every day. And I was like, okay, these people are like facilitating me to live my guiding principle. First of all, I needed to know what my guiding principles were. I had no idea what they were. I yeah. lived them my whole life, but didn't even know what they were. And the first time I heard someone speak about that was 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 Michael Gervais when he said, you know, what, what's your philosophy? And people were looking with this blank face. And I'm like, well, if I don't even know my own guiding principles, how the hell can I even help anyone? But how can I help myself? And I, I started to realize, okay, the, I need to show up. So I started leaving little notes around myself. I would tune into podcasts in the morning, listen to things. And I'd be like, you know what, David? Think back to when you were in hospital. You would have given anything to go out and ride in the rain. And now you're complaining because it's raining. I said, there's, there's again, like Trevor says, saying stupid shit out loud. So I was like, right, I'm stopping. Like, I ain't complaining about the rain now. Like, headwinds on a bike. You always hear slights going on. It's a strong headwind today. I'm like, that's like, that, that's stupid shit out loud. Again, stop complaining. Because if you were, if that was taken from you and you were lying in a spinal hospital paralyzed from the neck down, you would give anything to ride 200 miles into a headwind. So I was like, stop making these excuses. And rather than letting that voice run the inner narrative of all these preferences, what's well, easier just to eat this and sit and watch Netflix. I'm like, no, no I want to show up today because you know what? Well, I might get diagnosed next year and then that's it. I'm dead. And do I want to have lived by preferences or guiding principles, guiding principles. But again, this is hard work. This stuff is just not, it's not easy. It's and not. sometimes people look to athletes and go, it, it comes easy, but it doesn't come easy to athletes either. It doesn't come easy to anyone. All these people you see living this life put the work in. So if you're if you're listening, you know there's there's a there's a few things to take note of. One, do you know what you stand for? Because if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And do you have your own set of values of principles? Um, you can go online and, and just get a list of core principles and pick five or six of them and then define them for yourself. You know, I had to do that because what I'll tell you, and I think you know, David, you'll speak to this next a, a little more fl fluidly than I will. But principles are like muscles. You know, if you don't exercise them, they get weak. You know, I for a lot a lot of my life, I would share you know my dishonesty muscle because I grew up lying about what was happening in my home. I grew up about who I was. I learned this pattern of dishonesty, so my dishonesty muscle was very you know, strong. And so I, I, I didn't know how to be honest and I didn't, couldn't even see my own dishonesty. And, and it led me down a path of making a lot of bad choices because that muscle was the strongest. So when I decided to change my life and make honesty a guiding principle, I found myself, I'm still being dishonest or I'm still being undisciplined. And it was over time, I built the muscle of honesty. And then when adversity comes, my strongest muscle is honesty or my strongest muscle is discipline. But it's only strong because I've exercised it in the face mm -hmm. of not feeling like doing what I know I need to do. I've done it. And that's how you build, you know, that principle. So for you, you know, you've obviously identified what your principles are and then you live by them and, and they've gotten stronger for you. So in the face of all this adversity, maybe you can talk a little bit about how, how those principles have been driving you. You know, one of them that's really interesting, which has grown really strong with me is, is, is being with, being with people being with people, being in the now. And, and I was super guilty of this. When I was with my friends or anywhere, you know, I was maybe on my phone or I was multitasking, doing different things. And, and I was like, that's not, I'm not respecting that person. I'm not giving them myself. And, you know, I think this is super important in a world that we live in now that everyone's reachable constantly all the time. And it's, you know, it's easy to sit at dinner with your loved ones and be on your phone, and, but you're not there with them. And then when that's taken from you, you'll go, oh, you know what? 
I would give anything just to sit with my husband, my wife, my child again, or, or whoever was your friend that's no longer here. And actually you look back and think, geez, all those times I spent with them, I was actually on my phone. And, and, and I remember reading something one time that this, this guy spoke about, you know, he, he says, I see my dad only at Christmas. So if my dad lives another 10 years, I'm actually going to see him 10 more times in my whole life. And, and I started to think about that on my journey as an Arab principle that I live by. I was like, wow, okay, if I've faced this mortality now for, for living, well, 12 years now I've been battling, battling the tumor and six years the paralysis. And I realized I'm like, wow, okay, I might not live that long. So I might only have 10 more summers or 15 more summers. I'm like, what, what do I want to do with them? I don't want to spend them disconnected. And, and I realized that actually I want to connect. So one of my biggest principles is, is connecting, connecting to nature, connecting to the environment. And I had this sort of coping strategy. I seen that I was sitting on a stool and the stool had four legs and each leg was a coping strategy. One is, is to do sport, one is to connect to nature, one is to connect with people, another one is creativity. And if I've got all four of them in my life, they're my guiding principles. And I'm just thankful that I, I'm still alive to have those coping strategies. And sometimes they're all taken away from me. And I'm like, then what? Then what? And it's easy to be good when everything's great. It's a lot harder to keep your shit together when things are not going good. And that's really when your true character is revealed. So I always thought, right, David, your guiding principle, and you're one of the things you need to work on is who, who's showing up when it's really bad. And then that's the person when you look in the mirror and say, okay, that's the person that needs work. That's the person that wants to show up with compassion, with gratitude, and all of these great guiding principles to the world. And, and I sort of feel that, you know, walk down the street, smile at someone and say hello. And that's why I love Jamaica, because it's a warm place. I wander around speaking to people and going, wagwan, wagwan, yaman, yaman, bless up, bless up. And then I go back to the UK, and if I say hello to somebody, they think I'm mad in London. <laughs> And you know, so I'm like, we're all going through something, but I always say to myself, okay, even on my worst day, I still want to be a good person. And, and that's changed. You know, sometimes sport can be quite a narcissistic endeavor when you're truly trying to be world-class and be that winner. That's, I've left that now, I've, I've passed that. My, my days of trying to chase medals are gone. For me, it's about making the start line and the reason for that being my purpose is, is to is to try and show people, you know what, no matter what's going on, you can still make the start line, whether whatever that may be in your life, what is the start line for you? And just to make sure that you show up every day, because as you know, Charlie, the you know, eventually we all sit and meet our maker. And at that point, you want to be able to look back and go, you know what, I lived the life that I wanted to live. I made the choices I wanted to make. We're in control of those choices. I can choose now to be the guy who doesn't get up every day because it's easy for me just to lie down and go, this is shit. Man, I, and I think, you know, the way, the way I prepare to meet my maker, and it sounds like it's very similar to the way you prepare to meet my maker, is I meet myself in the mirror every night. You know, and when I meet myself in the mirror every night, and there were a lot of years I couldn't look in the mirror. You know, there were a lot of years and, and a lot of days when I, when, I, when I had to turn away. And when I can, you know, get in the, I can brush my teeth and I can sit down, I can look in the mirror and say, you showed up today the way you were supposed to. I feel like that preparing to meet my maker is, is, is when I meet myself in the mirror every night and I can look him in the eye and I like who he is, I'm a little closer to know and I'll be okay. Yeah, and I you know it's interesting. I had a discussion with someone recently, and they were asking me one of my coping strategies. And I said, you know, what? it's it's a story. I said I meditate on my own death. 
I lie in bed, close my eyes, and I'm thinking, you know what? You're not going to wake up tomorrow, David. This is your death. You're going through your death now. He was like, whoa, I couldn't do that. And I was like, maybe because you don't like the person you're being, maybe you need to connect and change. But I, I know it's not for everybody because it is quite intense. But actually, what I used to say to people was that if you knew the day you were going to die, would you choose to live today differently? And the answer should be absolutely yes because it should eliminate any procrastination. It should eliminate turning up. It should facilitate showing up and going out and, and, and smashing it and, and putting good energy into the world. The world needs good energy. It needs the good people doing good things. It's, it's very easy for people just to, to close off and go, you know, I, I can't open the door today. But, you know, the, the, I think that I always say to the people who are healthy and the people who can move, they owe it to the people who, who can't do things to go and do it. I love seeing people skiing and surfing. I love it. And then you're like, why do you love it so much if you can't do it? I was like, no, because I love that they're moving their body. They're, they're taking advantage of the gift that they have. And ultimately, the greatest gift that we have is, is, is our health. I mean, when you lose that, it doesn't matter how many sports cars or plasma TVs you have in your wall. When, when your health is gone, that's it. So invest in it. Do the inner work. I think that's so, so important. As, as Michael Gervais talks about, we train our craft, our body, and, and, our, and our mind. And, and I think that this is the biggest thing, man. If we can start to manage what's going on here, then we can start to flourish, flourish in life. And, and one thing I noticed in video therapy was, you know, I'd sit in the cancer ward and people would be smiling and happy. I'd go up onto the street and people would be unhappy. And I was like, wow, what? Like, does it take mortality to actually kickstart people into how can we get people who are fully healthy to to appreciate life the way that somebody dying of cancer is yeah we i think we'll both we'll both appreciate that that other slogan from trevor is that you you just you don't have to be sick to get better you know you you, you don't have to wait to hit rock bottom i i'm not a i'm not a big fan of of in in recovery you know when people have addiction issues they say oh you have to hit rock bottom it's like the elevator goes all the way to the fucking bottom you can get off wherever you want pal like it's off you can get off yeah. in the eighth floor. you can ride it to the basement it'll go you know and i've seen many it'll take you yeah. to the grave but you can get off whenever you want and start getting better and and just, and you, you've described so eloquently just make it simple every day just to do things that are consistent and aligned with your principles you know have good healthy outcome expectations have good goals and dreams that you want to reach but then stay focused on the present moment and the process of of what it takes to get there and you know i think we do have so many people that do struggle and i always i like to ask and i think you know you've answered so many of them but what's the kind of the one staying piece of advice i think for someone like yourself who has faced so many multiple setbacks in in your road to being the best version of yourself every day what's the What's the couple of pieces of advice that you'd give the people that, that listen to this podcast for, for inspiration on overcoming things, David? For, for me, it's, uh, it's simple. Find out who you are, those guiding principles, and, and, and show up every day. It's like writing a contract to yourself that you're going to show up every day. And that comes from knowing that you're, you, know, you're, you will die one day. That is the sure given. There's no given in the world you will die one day and that alone should be enough to drive you into the present moment and live and and much like trevor spoke about as well that shit will go wrong and it's not about this positive 80 theory stuff you know it's accepting what is is dealing with it find the solutions not the problems go for the you know the, the way it's growth mindset 
trying to end the work. It, it takes work, but commit to it, stay disciplined, but ultimately show up every day and ask yourself, am I showing up to be the person I want to be? You know, hold yourself accountable. Well, I mean, I just, I'm so excited to stay on this journey with you. I'm, I'm so excited to be connected with you in, in, in a meaningful way. And can you just maybe share, I know people want to jump on and, and start to continue to be inspired by your journey. Can you share with our audience and we'll tag it in the show notes where people can follow you and find you? Yes. So I'm, I'm on Instagram, David Smith MBE on there. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't, I'm not the best at socials. I am writing a book. I wrote, I wrote my own book. Um, so I'm in the process of, of trying to find someone to, to publish that. Uh, so I, I sat during COVID and wrote 90,000 words uh, to oh, try and share with people bitching. about the whole about the whole journey. So the next step is obviously is to, to get that out to people and, and try and make a difference. I love you are making, you're making, you, you're making a huge difference and I love get to your own start line. You know, I'm going to take that. That That's my one takeaway is what's, you know, what's my start line and, and what am I doing to, to, to get closer to it every day, whatever it is. And I'm on this path of, of you getting to your next start line and, and just so appreciate you, man. If there's anything that I can do for you or we can do for you, you know, just a, just a message away. I want to thank you guys. And, you know, and even I want to thank Brian because Brian had a huge influence in my life, potentially even saved my life. And I'm the person I am today from listening to him saying, be where your feet are. And again, Charlie, huge thanks to you, the work you do, the people that are on your podcast and listen to it. I love it. I love George's book. You know, that I read that as part of my sports science, uh, science sports psychology masters. And this stuff can be super complicated, but those guys have just got this gift of making it so simple. And it it's is so simple. true. It is. And, you know, a huge thank you to everyone who's who's doing good stuff. But yeah, yeah, man. Thank you, especially to Brian, because he, he had a massive impact on me. But well, and a lot of my friends now live where, be where their feet are. A lot of my, I, I text my friends to be where your feet are. And they're, you know, they're, like where did you learn that well i'm gonna message him when we get off because he just it's so funny i mean it's not funny it's just how it is i mean just literally yeah, just yeah. got a text from him before we hopped on this podcast and so i'll be sure to message him and, and let him know the influence that he had on yeah, you and, yeah. and and how how big an influence he has on so many and uh and you and i will stay in touch and we'll see you at the start line yeah man i definitely uh, we're, we're, we'll meet up on the on the same start line you I know we will awesome man okay that's David Smith, folks, and Overcome Out Loud.